You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I talk with James Altucher. James is a prolific writer, a successful serial entrepreneur, chess master, and venture capitalist. James has a very colorful history throughout many facets of the finance industry. He has successfully started and sold various companies, and James currently invests in or advises over 30 companies in multiple industries. Without further delay, let's jump right into today's episode with James Altucher. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. James, welcome to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network. Your background is so interesting and covers many different avenues. Talk to us about your background and how you got to where you are today. I think the age of specialization is over. Like the days when you would just major in electrical engineering in college and then you become an electrical engineer uh, for the next 40 years and then you retire. That's obviously over. I think that's been over for a while, but I think people now are used to switching careers and opportunities and passions very frequently. And so I almost am like, for better or for worse, a little bit of a test case in that. Like I did major in computer science. I went to graduate school in computer science. I uh, was a programmer for a while. And then I worked for HBO, the television company. I shot a TV pilot. I started a company building websites for entertainment companies. I ran a venture capital firm. I ran a hedge fund. I started writing about investing and I wrote many books. And then I started writing about more self-help, motivational stuff. So what happened was is that after I sold my first company, made a lot of money, I went dead broke. Then I made money again. I went dead broke. I made money again. I went dead broke. Finally, decided to be transparent about it and write about what I had been through and how I back and also various depression that resulted and you know, and each time how I had to kind of bounce back. So I started writing books on that and that kind of changed careers a little bit. So this is like fourth or fifth time I'm describing a a career change. And, you know, and then it keeps moving on. Like I just, I've started other companies. I've invested in other companies. I'm a co-founder of many companies. I've written all sorts of books ranging from self-help to a little bit more literary to finance. I've written columns for almost any topic under the sun. I've written for financial newspapers, yoga journals, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, TechCrunch. I've done a lot of different things. Oh, and I own a comedy club. And for the past five years, I've done stand-up comedy most nights per week. On your website, you mentioned you were one of the few people in New York City that knew how to code a website back in early 1994 when you were just starting your career in web services and the information technology industry. What was the internet space like back then and what inspired you to enter the uncharted world of the early internet? Well, the internet's been around for a long time, since like the early, since like 1971 or 72. And then the web on top of the internet started around 1991, wasn't really, I didn't start using it till maybe 92 or 93. And I got obsessed with it. I thought, wow, this is this new artistic medium. It's like you don't just write a straight novel. Now you can like have hypertext to other stories or other pieces of information. Like I just got obsessed with 
the three-dimensional nature of, of text and, and images and that maybe this is, I didn't think of it as a commercial medium. I thought maybe this is something I, I was very interested in writing novels at the time. I thought maybe this is a new medium I can learn how to create with. And I was a programmer. So the combination of these two interests, the web as a creative tool and programming and writing, the combination of these three interests made me learn everything I could about web development. And so when I moved to New York City, nobody here even knew the web existed. And I would explain to people, oh, no, this is a new thing that's going to be very popular. Nobody's really using it right now, but it's so amazing. Eventually, everyone will be. And this shows how little I understood about business because if I understood anything about business, I would have built like, I don't know, even a search engine back then or something. But instead, I didn't have any money at all. I had zero dollars in the bank. I couldn't just, I didn't know anything about raising money. I was a computer guy and I was trying to write the great American novel and I was busy working at HBO during the day. So I convinced a couple of people, hey, maybe you need a website. I convinced HBO, maybe you need a website. And there was no competition. There was maybe, I would say, I could name them, the four or five people who knew how to program, and I do mean program, but how to program a website from scratch back then. There was no WordPress. There were no tools to make websites. If you made a website, a basic website used HTML, but if you wanted any functionality, you had to program in C or C++ or a few years later, Perl to make a website functional. And and then you had to understand Photoshop and make designs. There weren't like massive archives of images and logos and, you know, public, you know, photography to use. You had to make the images. And so very few people knew how to make a website back then and make a functional one. Because also the web didn't really work that well. Browsers didn't really work. So we we're kind of, we're all figuring it out at the same time. And it was exciting. It was fun. It was exciting. We all knew each other. First, all of us as individuals were making websites. Then we all had companies and we all knew each other and we all went to the same parties and we all hung out together, even though we would compete to the death during the day. And it was ruthless, but it was exciting at time as well. During your intro, you mentioned that you had made a lot of money and then lost it and then made a lot of money and lost it. Talk to us a bit about those times when you lost it all. I sold my first company. And again, I knew nothing about business. Like if I knew something about business, I'll tell you here's an example of how I knew nothing about business. One time we were doing a little website. We were doing AmericanExpress.com. And it was the very first website they ever made. And it was about 60,000 pages. And because there were so many pages, I wrote software that basically made all 60,000 pages. You know, I made some templates. And not only that, I allowed the people in each department of American Express, I set up little message boards behind the scenes for every page where they could send, you know, they could communicate, oh, there's problems with this page or problems with this page. And they could talk with each other and do quality control and so on. So, but I didn't tell them I made this software because I didn't want them to think it only took me a few minutes to generate all 60,000 pages with this software I wrote. So I was like, oh, we worked for weeks hour after hour and hired all these people, made 60,000 pages. Well, what I forgot to realize is that a software company is valued so much higher than essentially a glorified ad agency, which is what we were when we were building websites. We were an agency and agencies get valued at maybe six times earnings. Software companies get bought for hundreds of millions before they even earn money. So if I was just smart about business, I would have said, no, I'm a software company. I'm a software guy. I'm a tech guy. And I would have sold to some big company, like let's say Yahoo was the biggest internet company back then, or Lycos, or one of these early you know, internet companies. So instead, sold the company, still did well, made about $15 million for myself personally, 
cash. I knew this was crazy. So I cashed out when I could. And then I said to myself, well, I just achieved the American dream. I must be the smartest person in the world. So I poured all the money back into stocks. And I also made a lot of investments in private companies. And I just didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't an investor. I was a computer programmer. I was a writer. I was somebody who loved working at you know, HBO. And I didn't know anything about investing. I mean, this was like 1998, 1999. And so eventually I lost every dime. Went from 15 million, my low point, give or take a few pennies. I looked at my checking account one day and I had $143 left. That same account, maybe a year and a half earlier, had had $15 million in it, cash. And I was just so stupid and so unreasonably confident. And that's I was confident because I thought I was smart and you should always never think you're smarter than the entire world. When you invest even $1, you're competing against the entire world. They're on the other side of your trade. And I should have been a little bit more humble about learning and studying and being a student of the market, something I didn't do until later. And I should have just focused on, oh, I've made all this money. Now maybe I can have an impact on the world. Maybe I can do the writing I wanted to do. And maybe I can work on myself and improve in other ways now that I, I did all these years of business and programming and so on. And I was tired, but instead I was stupid. And then every time I made money, I kind of went through the same process where essentially there's three skills to money. There's making it, keeping it, growing it. And I, at first I was very good at making it. I would make it, I'd lose it, I'd make it, I'd lose it. I couldn't seem to keep it or grow it. And that was a problem that went on for like something like 11 years. It's very frustrating. That I, I started another business, sold that for 10 million. I did some deals and investments, made a million here, made a million there. Each time I thought I was real smart, I thought that's it, done. I'm now smart again. And then I would blow it. And it occurred to me whenever I was going up, I was doing similar things and had similar habits. And whenever I was going down, I would forget to do those habits. So the habits on the way up, I was very focused on what I now call a daily practice. And this is something I try to focus on every day. I tried to improve in four different ways, physical health, emotional health, creative health, spiritual health. So physical health is sleeping well, eating well, exercise. Emotional health is trying to improve the relationships around me, my family relationships, my friend relationships, and my business relationships. Creative health, I tried to exercise my creativity muscle. I write down 10 ideas a day, and I also do writing every day. And spiritual health doesn't mean like prayer or meditation. It just means having awareness of what you have control over in your life and what you don't have control over. So you can't do anything about the things you don't have control over, but you can try to make better the things you don't have control over. And, and that helps you kind of relax and have more sense in your life. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. 
Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. My guess is through all of those ups and downs, you probably learned a lot. So what advice do you have for today's entrepreneurs that may be on a similar volatile roller coaster as they strive for their own success? Well, you know, it's really interesting because I feel like a lot of people want to be entrepreneurs. And, and you know, you get all this like self-help advice about you can do it. You know, everybody's got a business inside them. If you just work like 100 hours a week, I don't really know if that's true. And I'm not saying like advice like that is totally bad. If you're passionate about something, then yes, if you have the energy, work 100 hours a week, respond to every email, respond to every comment, study the industry, study all your competitors, make a better product. If you have a passion for something, if you don't, then what are you hustling for? Like you only have so long to live. If you spend it all running on a treadmill, you're going to die. So I think hustling and so-called crushing it does work, but only if you're passionately, passionately interested, so passionately that you dream about what you're interested in at night, that you love talking about it, that you 
that you love studying it and reading books about it and interviewing people about it and you know, networking about it and putting yourself in environments where hustling becomes easier, crushing it becomes easier. So you don't necessarily have to be an entrepreneur. Essentially, think about the average multimillionaire. The average multimillionaire has five different sources of income, according to the IRS. That's not like statistics. That's like IRS facts. They see people who are worth a billion file income sources from five different sources on average. And so a job, if you have a full-time job, that's only one source. So you can't get financially free, most likely from only one from one job. But uh, being an entrepreneur is only one source of income also. So that's not always the best strategy. Now, it's a great strategy if you have an idea that you could sell for $100 million, but that's pretty rare. And there's a lot of skills involved in being an entrepreneur. It's not just coming up with a good idea. You have to also have relationships to raise money. You have to have relationships to get customers. You have to have sales ability. You have to have technical ability. Even if you don't build the product, you have to be able to micromanage the product because you'll hire developers or whatever. You have to have leadership skills, motivation skills. You have to be detail-oriented so you can keep track of profits and losses and stay on top of clients, particularly as if you don't have enough staff yet. So being an entrepreneur is very hard and requires... There's no one skill called entrepreneurship. It's like an umbrella of skills. So I encourage young people, try lots of things because you can't figure out what you're interested in. You have to do things to determine if you're interested. My guess is you didn't say to yourself, hmm, I would really like to invest in real estate. My guess is you did things. You saw people invest in real estate. You went on location. You saw people you admired who were having a fun time or enjoying the process of real estate investing. Maybe you helped someone place an investment. Maybe you did your first investment and it felt good. And you said, huh, that feels good. It's like a compass pointing me more towards this. And so I'm going to read the real estate listings and I'm going to see which ones I think are undervalued compared to other buildings or projects that have been sold nearby or in similar situations. You started to become more and more of an expert because you were hustling at something you were interested in. So your hustle mattered. And I think, you know, again, you have to try lots of things because maybe it's not real estate investing. Maybe you would have rather been a Bitcoin investor or a stock market investor, or maybe you would rather invest in private companies, or maybe you do have an idea to start a company or whatever. You don't know. So you have to try lots of things. You're trying podcasting. You're looking at stocks. You're looking at real estate. You're trying lots of things. That's the first thing I would recommend is A, every day, work on your inner self. So physical, emotional, creative, spiritual health. B, try lots of things. Experiment and take small risks, not big risks, but small risks to see which risks you're comfortable with and which risks excite you. No, those are really the first two basic things. And I think most people skip those two things, working on their inner self and experimenting with lots of things. So it sounds like a cliche answer. I hate to say it sounds like almost too self-helpish, but it's not because it's not the basic advice. And it's actually critical for any successful entrepreneur or even investor. No, I, I don't think it's cliche. I think, it's, I think it is really good advice. What made you want to go from being a programmer to becoming a hedge fund manager after having trouble or losing it all from trading stocks? That's a good question because, again, it goes against the normal narrative. Everybody thinks, oh, I need to get a business degree, then an MBA, then I'll work at a Wall Street bank, then I'll work for a hedge fund, then I'll go off and start my own hedge fund. That's kind of the normal classic path of that. Not only did I have no experience, I mean, I worked at HBO, then I had started a company making websites for record labels. That was our primary client. And then I lost all my money investing. And then I decided to be a hedge fund manager. It's not the normal path for 
such a job. But after I lost all this money, I did get obsessively interested in investing. I was like, how could I make so many mistakes? And so I, it forced me to learn. And so once I started learning, I realized, oh my gosh, there are so many things I did wrong when I was investing. There is so much to learn. I was just so foolish to start investing before I even learned about even 1% of this. I must have read hundreds of books, read the biographies of every investor I could find, like every great investor. I wrote software to analyze the markets since World War II, like anything you could imagine about the markets. Like what happens if the stock market goes down four days in a row? What statistically happens on the fifth day? What happens for Microsoft the day after it reports earnings? What happens when insiders buy a stock? I would write software to analyze all these questions. And I read more and more about markets and accounting and every strategy, option strategies, commodities, arbitrage, value investing, growth investing. Because I didn't have any single training, I wasn't force-fed any one particular style of investing. I learned all styles of investing. And then I started investing. In the past 20 years, I've probably invested across almost every style of investing you could think of, ranging from algorithmic quantitative trading to day trading to real estate investing to arbitrage, options, value investing, and so on. And I just got very excited about it. I loved it. And when you love something, I started to get a track record and I started to write about my software. So I started to get to be known. That was my way of getting known by investors was by writing for the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, the street.com. And I gradually raised money for a hedge fund. And then I also raised money for a fund of hedge funds. I invested in other hedge funds so I could invest in multiple investing strategies. And that was it in a nutshell. Do you think being a serial entrepreneur before you started your hedge fund helped you? Or do you think it hurt you as a hedge fund manager? Oh, it definitely helped me because I learned how to sell. Like When you're an entrepreneur, you have to, you have to sell. And I don't mean sell just your product. You have to sell your vision of the world. With my first company, I built websites for companies that didn't even have websites back then. My vision of the world was that they were going to need a website or they were going to die. And so that was the vision I was selling. And I had to convince companies. I had to convince employees. I had to convince investors. I had to convince acquirers. I had to convince my partners. Because you know, when you're starting a company, it's not like, oh yeah, we make websites. We wanted to do anything possible that would make money. So while we were building websites, we considered, oh, should we bottle tea, iced tea and sell it in grocery stores? Should we make our own record label? Should we? we came up with so many different ideas. We were writing TV shows and building websites. And of course, the only thing that worked for us was building websites. But we were trying to think of anything we could to make money because we didn't raise a dime of money. So we were profitable from day one and we're just living off of profit. So we we're just trying to make as much money as possible. How was being a hedge fund manager different than you expected? You can't control the stock market and you can't predict the stock market. I mean, you can guess and you can make pretty good guesses. But in general, there's a lot that happens in the market that's out of your control and it can be very frustrating and very depressing. Whereas, you know, in other companies, I feel like I'm pretty good at making deals and structuring deals and understanding what kind of products people want. So I've been able to successfully start or co start many companies, whether I'm an initial investor or a seed founder or whatever, or creator of the founder of the company. With a hedge fund, you have no control over whether you're going to lose money many days in a row, make money many days in a row. So there was many frustrating points. It was too stressful, which is why ultimately I got out of it. Can I tell you a little story why I fully decided to get out of it? The moment I decided I'm getting out of this business, I'm sick of it. 
I was trying to raise money for the hedge fund, and a friend of mine introduced me to his boss. His boss gave me the tour of his facility. We spent some time together. He was a really nice guy. And he sits me down and he says, okay, James, why are you here? What do you want? And I said, well, I want to raise money for my hedge fund. And he said, listen, you're a great guy. I've heard a lot of good things about you. I read your stuff. If you ever want a job here, I'll give you a job. He had this huge multi $10 billion hedge fund. He said, if you ever want a job here, I'll give you a job. If I give you money, I have no idea where you're going to invest the money. I can't take reputational risk. And he said, he pointed to himself and he said, the last thing I need to see on the front page of the Wall Street Journal is the name Bernard Madoff Securities on the front page. So he wouldn't invest in me. Bernie Madoff, the biggest Ponzi scheme of all time. And I remember leaving his office and I was really depressed because he's not going to invest in me and he liked me and he you know, had better returns than me. So I thought. Nobody knew he was a scam. Everyone called me up afterwards. Hey, how did you find out what he does? Like, how can we invest in him? And I, I don't know. So I figured like, oh, I can't compete against guys like this. That's the really the problem with, with scandals like that is, yes, people lose a lot of money. But what really happens is it drives out legitimate legal players in the industry when people who are scandals, scams are soaking up all the money. It's only so much money for hedge funds. And he was soaking up $60 billion of it. So that's why I got out of it. I figured, you know what? I can't do it. I can't compete with the best. And I started other companies instead. I started a website, which combined my interest in investing with interest in websites. And you know, I started investing in private companies. I was really excited by Facebook. So I didn't invest in Facebook, but I wrote an article early on. Facebook had just turned down an offer from Microsoft for a billion dollars. You know, yeah, they turned it down because they're worth a hundred billion dollars. And I remember CNBC had me on, everyone was laughing at me. And I'm like, no, Facebook's like a mini internet. This is this is gonna be great. So instead of investing in Facebook, I did what I did with the internet. I couldn't start a Facebook ad agency, like I started an internet ad agency ten years earlier, but I invested in two or three Facebook ad agencies and they all did very well and I made money on them. And that's how I started kind of doing more intelligent private company investing. Wow, that story about Bernie Madoff, that's really interesting. And to hear that that's really what pushed the end of your hedge fund career, that's, that's very fascinating. Let me tell you something. Last year, I called up his prison and I said to the warden, can Bernie Madoff come on my podcast? I know the guy should come on my podcast. And a few days later, I hear back from the prison. Bernie Madoff said no. And I'm like, that guy turned me down again. It's 10 years later. He's got my number. Like, what else is he doing all day? He's just making license plates. Can't talk to me for 10 minutes. But yeah, frustrating my dreams again. Bernie Madoff. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort 
with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. With all of this talk about your success and failures as an investor and a hedge fund manager, what have you decided to do with your investing today? It's almost entirely, I mean, it changes every now and then, but right now it's almost entirely private companies. Actually, the safest companies are the ones that most people think are the highest risk, which are private companies. You know, I do my homework and I have people that I've been investing with for over a dozen years now and that I network with. And, and then in some cases, I help the founders start the company and then I invest. I don't get involved in running the company, but I invest very early on. Now, I am in some stocks, but that's because some of the private companies I invested in went public. And that's the main way I've made a living in the past 12 years. Now, when you do private investing like that, though, you can go three, four or five years in a row without making a dime. So I diversify, I write books, I do a podcast. None of these make a lot of money. It's the private companies that make investing that make the most money for me, but I like to do lots of things. I know many of your books embody this idea of choosing yourself. What does this mean and how has this idea made you successful? I really don't like it when people who tell me I can't do something and they don't kind of give me good reasons why. Now, they might be right or they might be wrong or they might just not know, but it's always worth thinking about it. Like, can I do this without permission, without validation, without someone choosing me? 
So for instance, a classic example is, let's say you wanted to write a book about real estate investing. You've never written a book before, is my guess. I'm actually currently working on writing one right now. And do you have a publisher? Right now, I'm planning on self-publishing. Right. Because when you go work with a publisher, you have to get an agent. The agent's probably going to say no to you because you haven't written a book before. The publisher's going to probably say no to you because the publisher's going to ask, well, how many Twitter followers do you have? How many Instagram followers do you have? Oh, not enough. We're not going to publish you and you're a first-time writer anyway. So all these people have to choose you in order for you classically to write and publish your book. But what if you just want to publish a book? You know enough about real estate investing. You can write a book on that, on your experiences. Your experiences are interesting to people. So you could write the book now. You could design a cover. You could do it in Kindle, paperback, hardcover, audiobook, and you could upload it to Amazon. Now your book's published. So I had written you know, eight or nine or 10 mainstream published books by publishers. And then I started to self-publish my most successful book, Choose Yourself, self-published. So I chose myself to publish my own book and it worked. Or if you want to do a TV show now, you can go around and pitch every network. That's really hard. They're all going to say no. We don't know who Robert is. Did he write it on Seinfeld? No? Okay, I don't want to meet him. But what if you have a great idea for a TV show? Well, it doesn't cost too much now to shoot a little show on your, on your iPhone. Then you upload it to YouTube. And now you have a TV show. Or by the way, you could upload it to Amazon and it'll appear on Amazon Prime. Now you have a TV show. So businesses too hedge funds. I chose myself to do a hedge fund. I didn't wait for Goldman Sachs to hire me. I wrote some software. I convinced people to trust me. And then I built a track record and started raising more and more money. And I built a hedge fund. I chose myself. Now, again, can't do that unless you're also healing yourself. So again, that's the physical health, emotional health, creative health, spiritual health. It's important to be healthy so you have energy to do your ideas. It's important to not have toxic relationships in your life. So that nobody, you're not in screaming arguments while you're trying to start your, your business or write your book. It's important to exercise the creativity muscle every day because it atrophies fast. And it's important to kind of give up on the things you can't control. That's always the base. But then that helps you figure out how to weave your way through so you can choose yourself no matter what the category. There is no category that doesn't allow you to choose yourself. You can even be an astronaut now without government's permission. So, James, as we wrap up the conversation, I'm going to put you on the spot here. As a serial entrepreneur and investor that's weathered the dot-com bubble and the 2008 financial crisis and Bernie Madoff, what's your number one investment pick right now? It could be a stock, a bond, ETF, real estate, or even cryptocurrency. And why? The best investment is really in yourself. Nobody Nobody became a billionaire picking a bunch of hot stocks and then waiting until they became worth a billion. Not even Warren Buffett, but people invest in themselves. So Richard Branson, he had a flight canceled. He was going from someplace in the Caribbean to Puerto Rico. The flight was canceled. So he arranged to charter a jet, but he didn't have any money. So he puts up a sign and he says $29 a ticket because he knew how many people were canceled on that flight to Puerto Rico. So everybody bought $29 a ticket. They got to Puerto Rico. And he said to himself, this 27-year-old hippie music magazine publisher who the heck was he? And he's like, I'm going to start an airline. And everyone said, you can't do that. No one can compete with British Airways. No one ever has competed with British Airways. Can't possibly compete against them. And you're a 27-year-old music publisher. What did he do? He just simply called Boeing and said, can I borrow a plane for a year? And they gave him one. And so he didn't 
invest in anything. You didn't say, oh, I'm going to buy Boeing stock or yeah, I can't compete with British Airways. I better buy British Airways stock. No, he said, no, I, I believe in myself. I'm going to borrow a plane from Boeing. What? You can't do that. I'm going to borrow a plane from Boeing. And then I'm going to convince the British government, I'm going to convince Heathrow Airport to give me a landing strip. What? They're not going to do that. And they did it. And he built up and he sold Virgin Atlantic for, what is it, three or $4 billion. That's the bulk of his wealth came from starting an airline at the age of 27. Now he's got Virgin Galactic. He's making spaceships and sending tourists. He's going to send tourists into space. So he invested in himself. You look at other people, Damon John, okay, he sold $6 billion worth of clothes through FUBU. He was sewing one hat at a time. And Macy's, he went to a clothing conference and Macy's made a $100,000 order. And you know what he did? He said, deal. He didn't have $100,000 worth of clothes to give them. So he went back to his mother and he said, mom, I'm mortgaging your house. I just need the money for a weekend. He mortgaged his mother's house. She would have lost her home. He hired a bunch of seamstresses, delivered the $100,000 worth of clothes to Macy's. He paid back the mortgage, saved his mom's house. He invested in himself. He didn't take that $100,000 and buy Apple stock. He made hats with it and gave it to Macy's. They gave him 100000 Now he sold $6 billion worth of clothes. Everybody successful invests in themselves first. And all these guys who are billionaires, who I ran about and think like a billionaire, you can see every story. They're all different. They all invested in themselves. The best returns, even if you're not an investor or an entrepreneur, take $2,000, take a photography class. If you do just one wedding next year, you made 200% on your investment. Where else are you going to invest in, and for almost a guaranteed 200%? Yeah, that, that last piece you added there, that's exactly what I was going to say is that most people, even if they invest in themselves, they're probably not going to build a billion dollar company, which is fine. That doesn't mean that they weren't successful. Like you said, you can invest a couple hundred or even a couple thousand dollars in a, a skill that you want to learn and then implement that in a side hustle or a small business. If you get a skill, that skill is yours forever. You own it forever. So let's say you spend a thousand dollars to get a skill and you live for the next 50 years. So you have that skill for 50 years. It's as if you paid $20 a year for that skill. It's almost nothing. And yet you could make a ton of money on that skill, whether it's a side hustle or something you're passionate about. There's no investment in the world better than that, really. Yeah, I agree. Recently for me, I actually I got my real estate license. I have no intention of practicing as a real estate agent anytime soon. But what's great is when you have your real estate license, you're able to earn a commission on referrals. And so if I know somebody that's purchasing a house, I'm able to refer them to a practicing agent and you can make a pretty substantial commission. I spent I asked three or $400 to get my license, studied for a few hours, went and passed the test. The next week, I referred somebody to buy a house or sell a house. They did. And I think I made two or $3,000 in you know, a couple of weeks just from that. You know, and that, I'm going to have that license forever and I can do that almost unlimited times. Right. And you're somewhat in control because you have a real estate background, you have a network, you have connections, you know the agents, you know the buyers, you know the landscape literally. And so, well, you made 400% in three weeks investing in yourself. And now you can't buy a new real estate license every week, but you can do something every week that says, okay, I'm going to just improve a little bit on some skill and invest in myself a little bit each week. In one year, two years, three years, your returns on those investments that you make each week on yourself it's incalculable. That's how you make millions. That's the main way to make millions or billions if you want to. Not everybody wants to make billions, but by the way, that's not the reason to study billionaires. 
you don't have to make billions, but studying what they did. Okay. If I did one one thousandth of this, I'm happy with that too. And I mean, it even, it even applies to somebody who has no entrepreneurial spirit or anything like that. If they, it even applies to a corporate career, right? If you go out and learn a skill that can help you climb the corporate ladder or just even get a higher salary, if you spend a couple hundred dollars or even a thousand dollars on a course, if that adds five, ten thousand dollars to your annual salary over the lifetime of your career, if you want to work a corporate job for the rest of your career, that adds, that adds a ton of value. I call that being an entreployee where you invest in skills just the same way you invest in yourself. And when you bring that into the workplace, trust me, no one can compete with you because they all work four hours a day tops and you're busy learning new skills that get noticed by your boss's boss's boss. It's all about being prepared for the moment and you know taking advantage of it. I really like that idea of the entreployee. I, I haven't heard that before, but I, I like that idea. Yeah, it's been a very valuable idea for me. James, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Where can the audience go to connect with you and learn more about all the different things that you have going on? Well, I highly encourage people to check out my latest book, Think Like a Billionaire. It's on Scribd, S-C-R-I-B-D.com, which is a, a great site. And uh, you can also listen to my podcast, The James Altucher Show. I will be sure to put links to everything that James and I have talked about throughout the show, as well as links to James's resources in the show notes. You guys can go check it out. Be sure to connect with him. Let him know what you thought of the episode. Let him know any questions you might have. James, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Robert, thank you for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Good luck with all the real estate investing. And I look forward to talking to you again. And now we're going into the segment of the show where I answer questions we receive from you all listening to the show. Today's question was asked by Zaitis on Instagram. He asked, as a millennial investor, how should I best allocate my portfolio for the best risk-adjusted returns over the long term? This is definitely a great question. And just by starting to think of this at a young age, you're ahead of a lot of people. But similar to last week's question, it's really hard to answer because it's specific to the person. It really depends what your long-term goals are, how willing you are to take risk, and how involved you want to be with your investing. I personally have a 30 to 40-year time horizon, and I tend to be okay with taking on quite a bit of risk. So that said, I'll try to answer the best I can, and I'll tell you about how I invest, then you can decide what works best for you. If you don't have a high risk tolerance or you don't want to be involved much in your investing, you're probably best off splitting your portfolio 90-10, 80-20, or even 70-30 between a low-cost broad market stock ETF like ticker symbol VTI, which is Vanguard's total stock market fund with an expense ratio of only 0.03% as of this recording and a low-cost broad market ETF like ticker symbol BND, which is Vanguard's total bond market fund with an expense ratio of just 0.035% as of this recording. If you want a bit more risk, you could increase the stock exposure to maybe 80 or 90%. If you wanted a little less risk, you could decrease the stock exposure to maybe 50 or even 40%. You could also buy a target date fund based on the year of your expected retirement. So if you're going to retire between 2041 and 2045, which means you're about 25 right now, you could look at a fund like ticker symbol VTIVX from Vanguard, 
or if you're about 30 and you're going to retire between 2046 and 2050, you could look at a fund like ticker symbol VFIFX, also from Vanguard. Both of these funds have a pretty low expense ratio of about 0.15% as of this recording. For context on the allocation of these funds, they have about 90% in stocks and only 10% in bonds. So if you're just going to buy ETFs yourself instead of buying a target date fund, you could follow a similar allocation percentage. But remember, it's really up to you and what fits your personality best. Like I said, for me, I generally like a lot of risk. I invest about 50% of my portfolio in ETFs, which I buy automatically every month. That 50% of my portfolio is allocated with about 45% of it to a low-cost S&P 500 ETF through Vanguard, ticker symbol VOO. And the remaining 55% is allocated to a low-cost technology ETF, also through Vanguard, ticker symbol VGT. Then the other 50% of my stock portfolio is invested in individual stock picks. I run a pretty concentrated portfolio with this part of my portfolio, and I generally buy big positions in the companies I really like, and I also sell options pretty frequently with this part of my account. You'll notice I don't own any gold or bonds or even total stock market index funds, but that's because I'm super passionate about investing, I love doing it, and I generally have a high tolerance for risk. With 30 to 40 years before my retirement, I'm okay with a lot of volatility in my portfolio if that means higher potential returns. So Zytus and everyone listening to the show today, I really can't say which portfolio allocation is perfect for you. There's no broad allocation that will work for everyone listening to the show today, but I hope this discussion will help provide clarity for you and help you decide which is best for you. If you want to hear your question answered on a future episode, the two best chances you have for this are to send them to me on Instagram or to post your questions in our Facebook group. You can find me on Instagram with my username Robert at TIP, which is spelled out as Robert A-T-T-I-P. I'll put a link to my profile in the Facebook group in the show notes, which you can find below in your favorite podcast player or at theinvestorspodcast.com. But that's all I had for this week's episode. I'll see you all again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.